Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we are. We're going to look at uh, a couple of verses here, 24 and 25, but really uh, a lot of other verses. And so we're going to put those on the screen whenever it's time to. But uh, when we talk about our gathering, the church gathering, it's really impossible to stay at one passage of Scripture and feel like I've really given you a good wholesome approach to what it means that it's so important that we gather as a church family. You know, God did not call one person in this room or watching online to isolationist Christianity, Christianity on an island. And you may be familiar with a, a video that was popular, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know if I lose track of time, but it talked about that uh, Christianity is not uh, a religion, it's a relationship. Or maybe you've heard that phrase before, and it's, it's trendy and it's catchy, but I'm going to suggest to you that that phrase, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, it, it really comes up short of what it should say, which is it's both. It, it's, it's both of those things. It's certainly not just a religion. It's not certainly just a relationship. There are components of both when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus coming together with his church. Religion, if you want to put it that way, is the worshipful product, the coming together product of that relationship, that intimate relationship that each of us has individually. This worshipful togetherness, this religion what we do together is the outpouring of what you and I each individually have within us. You see, culturally, we're turned off by the word religion because it's often manifested in forms of empty rituals or works without meaning. Or we may think of the Pharisees where they're just doing works for work's sake. And that's not what I mean when I talk about biblical religion, pouring out our worship. Call it whatever name you want. There is biblical precedent for the together practice of your individual walk with Jesus. Jesus and the New Testament authors called that togetherness of our faith several things. We talked about one of them. They called it a body with a head. They called it a flock with a good shepherd. They called it a building with a cornerstone. They called it a holy nation with a king of kings. It goes by many names. But there is no such thing as a Christian that lives in isolation. We must live together. We call it the church. That term is most, most associated with another term for what the church is and does. It's the term, you may have heard it, koinonia is the Greek term. It means fellowship. That's the name of our church, right? It's a good name to associate with what it means to be a church. That term koinonia or, or partnership is what it really means. Fellowship, it's a partnership. And you, I don't know about you realize this, but you can't have a partnership with one person, can you? There's togetherness there. In fact, that word koinonia, fellowship, is used 20 times in the New Testament. It's impossible to have a partnership without partners. God has designed your existence on earth as a believer to be one in regular fellowship with believers. You shouldn't do it alone. And I would suggest to you that, you that if you knew what a gift the church was, you wouldn't want to do it alone. Sometimes we have too low a view of what this gift is that God has given us. Not a burden, but a gift. We are exiles from the kingdom of God, longing for a home, partners coming together to be stirred and to stir one another to press on. So, we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, several times, in fact, throughout our time this morning. We'll start with it right now. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
When the Bible uses the word church, uh, it uses it in a couple of ways. It can talk about the universal church, which is every believer everywhere. That's a capital C church. And even in our language, if you see a capital C church, apart from a proper name of a church, it's talking about the church worldwide. We have brothers and sisters in China and Saudi Arabia that you may never know. But guess what? We're part of the same church, right? The universal church, the capital C church. But more specifically, oftentimes in the New Testament, when it talks about church, it's a little, a little c, a, a lowercase c, the local church, a local fellowship. In the New Testament, we see local house churches, not just assorted believers scattered around. They came together, and they knew, by the way, who belonged to their church family. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, it says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, there's a lot of things you can take away from those verses, but the one I want you to see is this, that Paul is clearly distinguishing and understanding that they have distinguished between those that are outside of their local fellowship and those that are inside of their local fellowship. Those that are your brothers and sisters of the church called Corinth and those that are outside of that fellowship. The early church, which is our model, we want to model ourselves after the New Testament church. They had, number one, a clear understanding who was part of their fellowship, and number two, a conviction to hold one another accountable, which is what we see in that verse, to stick with it, to sharpen one another, and to tell one another, press on, which is what we see in that verse we read just a minute ago in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which, again, we've already read that, so I won't read that again right now. The author of Hebrews in that passage is warning of the tendency and the danger of falling away from the gathering, of physical absence, of falling away. For the church body to function as God designed it, all the body parts must regularly be put together. And there's not one indicator in your Bible of a person coming to Christ and not locking arms with the local church body. There's just not. And so this is a manufacture of our current society to say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. In fact, that little uh, cliche, whatever you want to call it, it's catchy. I love Jesus, but I don't care for organized religion. You ever heard that? I love Jesus. I'm all about the relationship. I just don't care for organized religion. Guys, that is just a more tolerable way of saying, I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride. I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride. If you love me, but dishonor my bride, number one, we're going to have problems. Number two, I would suggest that you don't really love me. Yeah, I think that you may be able to say the same thing about your marriage. And I certainly would say that Jesus says the same thing about his marriage to his bride, the church. We cannot have Christ and not have the church. The two are together. They're called a body. And he is the head, but they are a body, not to be separated. And the church is not the unfortunate strings attached to the eternal reward. It is a gift. It is a complement to the reward of glory that God has given us in this life. And so I want to unpack three things that are sort of what I'm going to call the gift of the gathering in three components. Number one is this, church family worship, which is what we're doing right now. Church family worship. And I notice I put church in sort of brackets because it's not family worship with your blood family, although your blood family should be part of this worship, but this is our church family worship. And when we come together and gather, the most important thing we do is we worship together, right? church family worship. You may have heard the phrase, uh, I like that church because, uh, you know, I'm big on, on worship. 
I'm, I'm big on the worship. And what the, somebody may mean when they say that is, I'm big on the music, right? When you, when you hear worship, you sort of hear synonymously music. The preaching's okay, but the worship's great. That's probably what they say about here, right? Uh, the preaching's okay, but the worship is great. And you know what they mean by that, which is the, the music. How was the worship this morning? Oh, it was good. Well, they're talking about the, the music. I know that that's the spirit of those questions, but it really isn't a good habit to talk about the music as the worship. Because everything that we do when we gather should be worshipful. This is worship. This is a, a two-way avenue. You may not be speaking. You are communicating, though. We're a two-way avenue of worshiping people. The preacher is worshiping. Those listening are worshiping, should be, as we're engaging our hearts and worshiping the Lord in what we hear. Worship is much more than singing. It is at least singing, but it is much more than that. In fact, I would suggest to you based on the emphasis of the apostles, that musical worship is not even in the top two most important components of the church gathering together. I'm not making that up. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, this is the early church. This, I mean, the church literally just got started. And it says, and they devoted themselves to, listen, the apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship. That word is koinonia, same word we mentioned a minute ago. To the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, which I'm going to suggest the breaking of bread and the prayers are what he means when he says to the fellowship, doing things together, teaching and the fellowship. From that verse, we can gather the essence of our gathering, really. There's a few of these things, and, and really I'm going to say that there's six in total. Number one is Scripture must be read and the gospel proclaimed. Scripture must be read and the gospel proclaimed. And the reason I add that last part is because Scripture being read should not bring us to a point where we just say, I got to try harder. I got to try harder. I got to try harder. The man, the preacher really beat me up today. That just doesn't cut it, y'all. If all you get from this gathering is behavior modification, you have not heard the gospel of Christ. We are modifying constantly our behavior to be sanctified and grow more to look like Jesus. But the gospel must be proclaimed because your hope is not in your behavior and your action. Your hope is in the blood of Jesus, the empty grave. Scripture must be read and the gospel proclaimed. That's the first thing. We see this from the book of Acts, also from the New Testament letters, but one of them is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It means that you should be used for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, check this word out, complete, <laughs> competent, I mean, full, equipped for every good work. How many works? Every one of them. Maybe full. Romans 1.16, it's not on the screen behind you, but it says that the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to save. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that the power of God to save is church programs, church pro Sunday school. No, the power of God to save is the gospel, church. A church gathering that does not include the word of God, simply put, as a major component, is not biblical worship service. This is the main thing, and it's paramount. It is the first thing that we must gather around. It says the teaching in, in, in Acts 2.42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, which I'm going to say is, is the number two thing that we should really hold highly, and that manifests itself in many, many ways. But the second thing we would see is to celebrate the ordinances. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. We talked about that last week and two weeks ago, so I'm not going to go too much into that. Another thing that it says in Acts 2.42 is that they committed themselves to praying together. We see this in 1 Corinthians 14, but I'm not going to read it there just for the sake of time. 
what I'm trying to get across is that so essential was praying together to the gathering that they decided right behind preaching the word, right behind breaking bread, they were going to make sure that they prayed together. More important than singing together. We're going to pray together. Guys, it should make you feel weirder not to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ than to do so. It should be more foreign to you to not be a praying person with your body, your family, than it is to do so. And some of you say, I don't like praying. I don't care. It should be weird that you don't have that as a central component of who you are, is to pray with those that are closest to you. That's what the apostles are instructing in the early church in Acts. The next thing is congregational singing, corporate singing, which is what we have just done. We see them singing psalms in the Old Testament and in the New Testament even singing as well. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, we just got over that, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Listen to this though. After the word, it says, singing, when you're together, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And this is why I want to single this verse out. It's simply to say this. To neglect congregational singing is to neglect biblical obedient worship. Well, singing is not really my thing. I don't care. God does not want to hear from you a beautiful melody of your voice. He wants to receive a beautiful anthem of worship from your heart. Far more important is, than your voice is that you are making a melody of the heart unto our God. I'm not a singer. That's not what I was talking about. I'm not talking about singing. I'm talking about worshiping. And singing is a way that we see that manifested and instructed in the New Testament. God cares about a worshipful heart. Corporate singing. Singing together. They did that. We should do that. The next thing is giving and compiling of resources. We're going to talk about giving in one of the weeks ahead, so I'm not going to dwell here a whole lot, but uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, also in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that the church is not a business. However, it is a collective mission, and as such, we need to compile our resources just like the early church did so that together we can do much that we cannot do separate. And so as we come together, part of the fellowship is giving of our resources so that we can make a great impact around us. It's not a business, but it is a collective mission. But I'm going to suggest to you the last one is sort of not the most important one, but it is sort of the glue that binds all of the other ones together. And that's the sixth one, which is passion. Intricate to our gathering of worship is passion within each of our people. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Look very closely at these two verses with me, okay? About this passion of worship. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God, not animals, not, not bears, and, and not lambs, and not goats. No, offer to God acceptable worship with, here's the components, reverence and awe. <laughs> reverence and awe. And look at the last part. For, reason why, our God is a consuming fire. It's hard for words to shock, but if the consuming fire of the Lord filled this place, you would be undone, Isaiah was. Undone. Our God is a consuming fire. It's the reason that we worship. We use that phrase, right? 
when we are sort of filled up with, with worship. You may come home from summer camp or have a revival, and you come back and you say, man, I'm on fire, right? You ever hear that phrase? I'm on fire for the Lord. They come back, students come home from camp. Man, they, you came back on fire for the Lord. And we use that phrase. That's a biblical phrase. On fire. Israel in the wilderness was instructed in Leviticus 6, 13, to keep a continuous fire. Listen, they were instructed to keep a continuous fire burning outside of the tabernacle. Another word for that is a tent. They were to keep a continuous fire burning outside of the tent that represented God's dwelling place. Listen to this, though. Leviticus 9.24, talking about the continuous fire, Leviticus 9.24 says, And fire came out from before the Lord, listen, and consumed, does that sound familiar? Passage in Hebrews 12, and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw the consuming fire of the Lord, it says, they shouted and fell on their faces. That was the response to seeing our God as a consuming fire eventually taking residence in the land that God gave to them. They would remove the tabernacle that represented God's dwelling place, a tent, a tent. They would take that away, and they would instead build a temple that again represented God's dwelling place. In place of a tent, they would build a structure. And the moment, listen, the moment that temple was dedicated, Solomon the king dedicated that temple. The moment it was dedicated, the Bible says that God sent a fire from heaven and reignited the continuous flame. Listen, from a flaming bush to a flaming tabernacle to a flaming temple, Paul would come on the scene later and redefine the dwelling place of God, not in a temple, but said that your body is a temple. Guys, from the bush to the tabernacle to the temple to the new temple, that flame should still be burning. goodness when the holy spirit first took up residence in the very first believers Acts chapter you go read Acts chapter 2 when the spirit was first given to believers at pentecost you know what god's word says it says that a mighty rushing wind or spirit filled the room and it says this divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them the manifestation of god's spirit once again going at people was fire Guys, the fire should still be burning. It says that our God is a consuming fire, that our sacrifice is not to bring an animal to the altar of God, but it's to bring our awe, it's to bring our reverence, our worship. You want to be on fire for the Lord? You don't have to have a revival to do that. You don't have to go to summer camp to be on fire for the Lord. You get that way, not by going to a location. You get that way by submitting to the Spirit of God, igniting passion within you wherever you may be. And if you lack that, if you come to this place and you feel bored, it's because you need to ask God, put a fire back within me because I'm quenching it, baby. Reignite my spirit. Guys, when God is at work, when he's honoring the sacrifices of his people, he's called us to be living sacrifices, Romans 12. When we are living sacrifices, our God is a consuming fire, and you better believe we can feel the burning sensation when he's at work. You can feel it in this room whenever the Spirit's moving, can't you? This gathering is not just doing a religious thing. It's doing a worshipful thing. And my hope is that you feel the fire. God's at work among us.
The second thing, the gift of the gathering is not just church family worship, it's also personal spiritual growth. When we come together, one of the goals is personal spiritual growth, to grow in yourself. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, mainly because I think that this is part of the gathering that we may at least in thought understand the most. I'm not saying that we do well to all be growing. I think we could all make some gains there and, and give ourselves more to sanctification there. But I think that we in thought at least understand this. Second Peter 1, 5 through 7. Second Peter 1, 5 through 7 says, For this reason, for this very reason, make every effort, it says, to supplement. Look at that word to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Faith is the foundation, right? Our faith in Christ Jesus to save us from our sins, that we'll one day be with him in glory, that's the foundation. But what, what it's, Peter is saying here is that you have something to supplement that foundation. Supplement means to build with it, to add on to it, to strengthen it. Means it's not, when we have our faith in Jesus, we're not supposed to just be settled there and say, okay, I'm good, I'm content. I've got my get out of hell free card, and so I'm, I'm good now. I've checked that box, and I can just go and do whatever I want to do in life. Now, the call here is that we're to be constantly growing, supplementing, adding to that faith, not with works, not to gain some extended level of favor, but instead to say, with that faith now is going to come love for my brothers and sisters. It's going to come knowledge of the word. It's going to come self-control and steadfastness and godliness and affection. Supplementing. Maybe better said, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is, again, the author of Hebrews is writing to church, believers. Obey your leaders so the shepherds over you, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's always uncomfortable for the pastor to talk about verses like this one. Submit to your leaders, obey them. It's weird for me to talk about this, but I want to mention it for just a second, because I do think that part of your spiritual growth not relies on the work of a pastor, but certainly I and part of the effort with you, right? So I want to speak on this for just a moment. Now, this does not mean that you should let your pastor say or do whatever they want without consequence or accountability, or that you should blindly follow their leadership. Listen, Scripture is our ultimate guide, and Jesus is our ultimate shepherd. Amen? You see many churches torn asunder because of a pastor that got an ego, had a narcissistic way about him, and he destroyed the church because of it. We have one good shepherd, but... God has given under-shepherds who, when they walk with Jesus, it is of great benefit to the flock. With that in mind, from under-shepherd to sheep, I want you to know something. Look at that verse again. <clears throat> Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give account. You're God's sheep. But you've also been entrusted to me. That's a scary thing. You think it's bad for you? It's pretty scary for me. You're God's. He's the shepherd. But you've been entrusted to me. Your soul has been entrusted to me. Not as a ruler, but as a shepherd. And hear this in the most sincere way that I could possibly say it. No matter what happens, no matter the times that you're mad at me or whatever or disapprove of some decision, I love you. Okay? You're God's, but he's entrusted you to me. And I love you. And I got to give it account. 
for how well I've loved you. If you come to Fellowship Baptist Church, the fellowship, you will be fed by your shepherd. You will be protected by your shepherd. You'll be comforted. You'll be encouraged by your shepherd. That's my promise to you. But you will also be corrected. When it's appropriate, you will be reproved and told there is a better way. Because that's what a shepherd does to his sheep. It would be of no advantage for you. It also says in the next verse, or in that, in that verse 17, it says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What that means is that it would be of no advantage to you to be a source of groaning for your under-shepherd, be a source of my joy. I, I told you it was weird for me to talk about this. Be a source of my joy. You want to be fed? I want to feed you, but you got to come hungry. You want to be protected? I want to protect you, but you got to come often. You want to be comforted? I want to comfort you, but you first got to come vulnerable. You want to be encouraged? You got to come fellowshipping, ready to connect with your brothers and sisters around you. You want to be teachable? You want to be correctable? You got to come with a humble spirit. Your shepherd can only do what you give to him. And I will never shepherd you perfectly. I said that a moment ago. Only one can, but lend me your heart. And as you do, forgive me when I fail. Bless me when you've been blessed. Encourage me whenever God places it on your heart to do so. And I wrote in my notes here to say this little quote that you're saying to me, maybe, which is, bro, I don't know you like that. Yeah, you do. The moment that you said that this is your church and the moment that your church said that I'm your pastor, you decided that you know me like that. I'll never forget when I first got here, and I, and I didn't plan to say this, but I'm, I'm not going to put this person on blast. But when I very first got here, I had two people come to me, and one of them said, you're my pastor, and I barely know you, but you're going to preach my funeral one day. If, you, if I die when you're here, you're going to preach my funeral. And that rocked my world. But it also was a very clear communication that you're my pastor, and I'm entrusting my soul to you. Another person, though, two weeks, no, maybe not even two weeks, maybe one week after I got here, had an nightmarish family situation happened. I didn't know him, but he lent his soul to me, and today he's better for it, I think, because God used that and blessed that. If you lend your soul to me, I'm going to do my very best to love you, because you're God's, but you've entrusted your soul to me. And you may be apprehensive to really plug into the local church, and you know, we're just a church. We're not, we're not perfect, and you may say, you know, yeah, I plan to join the church, but I'd like to get some of my life cleaned up first. Why do you think we're here? Why do you think that we're here? Because we've got it figured out? You've heard it said many times, and I don't know who said it first, but the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Get your life cleaned up first? Why? This is what we're doing. That's why we're listening to this message right now is because we don't have it figured out. But we lean heavily on the one who already has, God himself. Which brings me to the next thing. While there's personal growth, while there's family worship, there's also a third component, which is something we do together, which is one another growth. One another growth. And I don't know if you've ever paid attention, but there's that phrase, one another, is used a whole lot in the New Testament. One another growth. Well, you know, one of the, the silly things about our culture, and it's not silly, I mean, it's, it's just real. Like, I, you know, I'm not a, I don't think I'm a pessimist, but I am a realist, and that's just a way that a, a pessimist says that they're not a pessimist, I think, um, or a cynic, rather. So uh, I just want to hear me say this. 
we live in a culture that comes, um, with, with our culture comes a lot of skepticism or hesitancy toward any institution or any organization. In fact, according to Pew Research, they started recording this back in the, in the early 60s, but public trust in the government, that's our national government, public trust in the government to, I'm going to quote, to most of the time do what is right has been on a pretty steady decline since uh, the mid-60s, 1964. Again, that I believe the government is going to do most of the time what is right. Can you even imagine saying that today? No, the stats reflect it too. You're not alone. It was 77% in 1964. 77% said, I believe in the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. They're going to do most of the time what is right. Fast forward to today, it says it's at 20%. That seems a little high. It says it's at 20% as of now, but I think if that's a little high, I think that number is constantly decreasing. Guys, we just don't trust institutions or organizations by nature. It's why you don't like giving out your social security number. It's why I don't like giving out my email or phone number to Dick's Sporting Goods or Starbucks. Why do you need that? You know what I mean? Why? You give me coffee. You don't need my email address. And so I, we have apprehension when it comes to trusting some institution or government or organization or whatever it may be. There is a new car wash place that opened up in Meridian. I know you think that's hard to believe. There's, I think that's 35 of them now. There's quite a few car washes around Meridian. There was a new one that opened recently, and I went because they were giving free car washes for the day that they opened, and then Brooke went later on. When I drove up to this car wash, and uh, there was a long, long line. I was like, come on, it's a car wash. Is it really worth it? I was like, yeah, we'll give it a shot. We'll see. So I get to the line and get pretty far in the line. I've been, I'm real deep now. I'm like 20 people in. And so the person, this little girl comes over. I say she's a little girl. Everybody seems little now that I'm getting older. But she comes up, she, and she asks me to roll on my window, and she gives me a piece of paper, and she says, here you go, and it gives me a pen and says, uh, fill this out to enter into a raffle for free car washes for the month. And I was like, okay. A cynic, right? I look at the piece of paper and it says name, email address, and cell phone number. I'm like, no. No, you can take this back. Uh, there's no chance. I mean, you're, you're a car wash. You don't need my phone number. You know what I mean? So I give it back to her and, and she's like, okay just trying to do my job. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't go that far. But anyway, uh, I got the free car wash, and it was fine. I called Brooke and said, hey, you know, they're, they're doing the, the car wash thing. You should go up there and get you one. Um, Brooke does it, and it was good. We get back, you know, a few days later, she gets a notification on Facebook that she won free car washes for a month. <laughs> so, I don't know. I guess that's why they wanted her information. But they contacted her on Facebook, not even with their email or phone number. So what's the point? I don't know. Listen, we just about expect institutions to abuse their power, to abuse their authority. We don't trust the institution. We don't trust the organization. Now listen, that's okay. In our world, in fact, I'd say it's, I encourage you to be a little bit cynical of institutions in our day. However, it's a big problem when we take that mentality and apply it to the church. Big problem. Big, big, big problem. It manifests in saying things like this. I'm going to church instead of being a part of one. When we don't, aren't willing to give ourselves to the institution, you know, put it that way, give ourselves to the body. If you're not willing to do that, it manifests in I'm, gonna, I'm going to church. Where do you go to church? No, 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 no. You don't go to church. You are the church. I'm part of fellowship. The Bible paints a very different picture than the one that our world, the one that that statement paints. Proverbs 27, 17 paints that picture. Iron sharpens iron, and what happens after that? One man sharpens another, right? You know that verse. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Another one is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which I've read now. 
This is the second time. It says, and let, one, let us consider how to stir up, listen to these two words, stir up one another. You're going to hear them again in just a second. Stir up one another to love and good works. Can't do that without each other. Not neglecting, verse 25 says, to meet together, as is the habit of some. It was a problem in the early church, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You, church, need each other. You need each other. You need to one another, one another. The Greek word for one another that's used here and in many other places is the word alelon, which sounds like all alone, which I think is really ironic. But that's the word for one another, alelon. It means to do something mutually, reciprocally. 100 of times it occurs in the New Testament, 59 of those times one another occurs by way of instruction to the church. And I'm going to read a few of them very quickly because I just want you to see the, the, the onslaught of this verb. It says, and I'm not going to reference all these scriptures, but they're, they're, they're there I'm, just for the sake of time. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Love one another. It's five times in John, two times in Romans, two times in 1 Thessalonians, three times in 1 Peter, six times in First and Second John, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Do not lie to each other. Do not slander one another. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. That means build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Encourage one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Guys, the essence of church existence is reciprocal in one anothering one another. You see it? I only read like 20 of those. There's 59. <laughs> There's 59 of them. Guys, we are not perfect at this. No church is. All churches will eventually be messy because they're filled with people that are striving to war against sin. However, God uses churches, this church, to grow us into the image of Jesus. I heard John MacArthur using an analogy for this. He said, Isolating yourself from the church <clears throat> is like isolating a piece of charcoal from the burning bunch. It will cool quickly, but together they use, they can accomplish much and keep their flame going within one another. Isn't that a great analogy for the church? Together, when you put charcoal together, it burns and it burns and it burns and it burns. You remove just one and it cools and it's dead. It's a good analogy the fact that we need one another and we can accomplish much together, we are useless apart. And guys, that's, that's really the tragedy that COVID brought on us. That's the tragedy that COVID brought to our doorstep. And many of you knew that. And you were thirsting to get back to the local fellowship, weren't you? And you watched it online and you'd say the same thing every single time, which was, it's not the same. It's not the same. And if you're watching online, it's not the same. You need to gather with believers. If you are able and willing, now some of you guys are, are shut in and it's impossible. You have health conditions, underlying health conditions, and you're just not able to be here. And, and I understand that. But if you're staying at home out of convenience or laziness or you're making continuous excuses, you're wrong. You're wrong. You need to be here because the gathering is essential. And the tragedy of COVID is that it told us it's okay to be apart from the church. That's wrong. That's not true. And you will quickly cool and become useless. What we do in this room matters. It matters. 
Online church is an oxymoron. It's not a real thing. Online church is not real because church necessitates being together. And if we can, if we're able and willing, forget willing, if we're able, we must be here. And I would go one step further and say this, and, and I'll spend the rest of our time here, and it's just not long. There's a big difference between attending a church and being part of it. We call that church membership. And that kind of has a bad ring to it because it sounds institutional. It sounds like a rotary club or a golf club or a country club or a swim membership. That's not what this is. That word membership is maybe not the best, but you need to not just go and, and, and have a worship time. You need to tether yourself to a body of believers. And I'm not making that up. I told you a moment ago, we saw the outside and inside, those outside of us, those that are here among us, but I'm gonna go a little bit further. Further, The word church member doesn't originate from membership to an organization or club. It originates from Paul's description of the relationship of the church of Corinth to one another. Listen to this. We read some of it just a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For just as the body, that's your physical body, okay, that's our flesh. Just as your body, the body, is one and has many members. You got fingers, you got hands, you got shoulders. It's got many members. And all the members of the body, though many are one body, he says, so it is with Christ. A lot of people look differently, different functions, but we're one. He goes on, 1 Corinthians 12, 25 to 27 says, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care, talking about the church now, for one another. If one member of the body, again, that's, that's the body of Christ, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Members. And the analogy is not of an organizational membership being on a list. The analogy is of being an inseparable part of a body. You're a member. And the call is to be and live as a member. To tether yourself. A member of a body, a physical body, cannot live apart from the body. A hand, foot, finger, ear, if you cut it off, it will, first of all, become useless, right? It can't do what it does, but also it will begin to decay if it is severed from the body. It's useless, and it dies. And in the case of a physical body and a spiritual body, in both cases, it is blood that gives and sustains life, whether it be of a finger or the blood of the lamb that sustains the life of the church. If you're severed from the body, you are severing yourself from that which gives you life, this church that is immersed with the good news of the gospel. When you join this church family and when you weekly gather with this body, you are reminded and lifted by the blood which gives you life. Guys, church membership, which I just, I'm, just, I'm starting to scrap that from my vocabulary because of the institutional way that it sounds. Instead, I would just say joining a family of believers, plugging in and connecting to a body of believers, it's not mere membership on a list or a role. It is membership into a faith family. It is a fellowship, a partnership. It's committing to a people, and it's submitting to leadership, and you need both. You need to commit to a local 
body of people, a people group. You need to come together as your people and worship as we've talked about, to one another, one another as we talked about. And guys, I'm gonna suggest to you, that means more than just being here on a Sunday morning and doing the corporate thing and then bolting out the door as soon as we say it's time to go. You think that you can come together and do all those one another statements when you just sit there silently? You think so? When you, when you just have the small talk before and after the service? No, you can't do that. Maybe it's time for you to find a Bible study to be a part of and start to sharpen one another with the people in your life, or the people that need to be in your life. It may mean that you need to start coming on Wednesday nights and sharing a meal, breaking bread, having a meal with one another and fellowshipping and saying, these are my people, and I want to communicate to them that I want to be theirs too. I see the benefit here. You want to be comforted? You need to come vulnerable. You want to be encouraged? You need to come as someone ready to fellowship. It also means submitting to leadership. You want to be fed? You got to come hungry. You want to be protected? You need to come often. You want to be teachable, correctable? You must come humbly. We're not just connecting to one another. We're submitting to a leadership standard unto God, ultimately. Guys, the gathering is a gift. And I would say that countless of our brothers and sisters in hostile regions would give anything to have that which you often take for granted right here. Think about that, man. Think about the brothers and sisters in Somalia, in the Sudan, in Nigeria, in China, in Saudi Arabia that would give anything to be right here worshiping loudly, freely, and collectively. And we just take that for granted. This is a gift. To resist committing to a body, tethering yourself to a church, because you don't like commitment or because it sounds too official or whatever the excuse may be, it's just not acceptable. It's wrong. That version of Christianity is an American creation out of convenience, privatization, consumerism, or excuse-making, or several of those. But I want to say one more thing, and that is you may have a hesitancy to joining a church. Not out of consumerism, not out of whatever the reason may be, but rather because you've been burned by the church. In a room this size, I know that that is the case for somebody here. If you've been burned by the church, I want you to understand that's real for one thing. That really happens. And there are pastors that have fallen and miserably ruined for others the church in the name of Jesus. There have been people in the church that have slandered and gossiped their way into ruining the church for people. Maybe you're just afraid to be hurt again by joining a church. One time, several years ago, we went to the beach and... Um, had dinner somewhere at a restaurant, then you'll know, and so I'm not going to say the name of the restaurant. Yeah, I will. It's Olive Garden. Um, I had the worst food poisoning I've ever had in my life. Should have gone to the emergency room. One of the worst nights of my life. I won't go into the details, but there were details. <laughs> that night, and even now, to this day, that was, that was seven or eight years ago, to this day, if someone suggests, let's go to Olive Garden, you know what I think? I don't know. 
And like I still, like, like post-traumatic stress, you know what I'm saying? Like I think, oh no, 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 anywhere. Anywhere but there. But listen, not all olive gardens are going to leave me sick and hurting. I had a bad experience, and that follows me. But that's not a rule. That can be an exception. And some of you guys treat the church like you've gotten food poisoning before. Don't let that ruin the church for you. Don't let that ruin the church for you. This is the church that loves the Lord and that loves one another. We are imperfect people purchased by the perfect blood sacrifice of the perfect Savior, and we are marching arm in arm toward heaven together. I'll leave you with a question. What would the church be if we were all at your level of commitment to it? What would the church be if we were all at your level of commitment to it?